The reading is from John chapter 17, and we're reading verses 20 to 26. Jesus is praying for the believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and I have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fantastic. Shall we pray together? Lord God, we pray that as we focus on your words together, you would help us to hear your voice. Help each of us to take away today what we need from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are at the beginning of our sermon series. We started last week a brand new sermon series asking the question, what is the church for? Now, I imagine if I asked you all that question, you would all give me fairly different answers. There would be a few commonalities, but we're really going to be digging into that question. What is the church for? What are we doing when we gather together over the next few weeks? And it's great that we're asking this question and reading a passage of scripture like this, on a day like today when Charlotte has been welcomed into the family of the church for the first time. So although Charlotte probably won't entirely understand these words just now, I'm going to give and try, I'm going to try and give her and the rest of us a bit of an introduction of what actually is happening when we become part of the church. So the words that we've just read from John's Gospel maybe need a little bit of context. This passage of scripture is set just after the Last Supper and Jesus is praying. John records Jesus as praying first of all for himself, then for his disciples, and then for all believers. The passage that we just read is that bit where Jesus is praying for all believers. So essentially, this is Jesus praying for us. I think it's really interesting to see what Jesus prays for. He could have prayed that we would all live incredibly holy lives. 
but he doesn't. He could have prayed that we would all give lots of money to the church, but he doesn't. He could have prayed that we would all spend all of our time and energy trying to put everything that's wrong in the world right. But he doesn't pray for that either. Out of everything that Jesus could possibly have prayed for, he chooses this. That all who believe in Jesus through the disciples' message would be one. That we would be unified. I wonder what you think about that. Well, I have some thoughts. You'll be pleased or maybe not that pleased to know. (laughs) On the one hand, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? It's even a little bit gentle and fluffy. We get to be one. All of the church sat around a big heavenly campfire singing Kumbaya. A side note here, nobody ever sings Kumbaya anymore, do they? (laughs) I have not heard that song in well over 30 years. But that's the image, isn't it? The image that we're all sat around loving one another, being nice to one another, and it's all a bit kind of nice, pink and fluffy. Now, if you asked me, I would definitely say that I am passionate about unity, that I'm passionate about the church being one, about us supporting one another as we share the love of Jesus with the world. I'm totally all in. There's a popular phrase that people say in the church, a bit cheesy, but they will know we are Christians by our that's right, not they will know by, we are Christians by our Twitter spout, spats, but they will know we are Christians by our love. But there can be some pretty significant challenges to these warm, fuzzy feelings of unity. Let me give you some examples. How do I maintain my desire and focus to be one with my fellow believers that I know that there are loads of Christians, even in the Church of England, who don't think that women should be ordained? It's a challenge. How do I hold on to my passion for unity when some believers use the words of the Bible to oppress, subjugate, and control others, taking texts that speak of liberation to uphold systems that maintain power for the most powerful. How do I hold on to the passion for unity when the behavior of some believers can be so poor? thinking of people who've been leaders in the church who have caused harm to others or looked away when others have been harmed or not fought for the survivors of abuse. That idea of unity isn't feeling quite so warm and fuzzy anymore, is it? Now, We're welcoming Charlotte into church today, into the worldwide family of the church. But there's something really important that the issue is, it's full of humans. It's full of people just like me and just like you. 
Humans are absolutely fab. I love people, but we have a tendency to make a mess everywhere we go. And the church is no different. It's a place where humans human spectacularly. So how do we do this unity thing in the church? And why does it matter so much that it's the one thing that Jesus prays for for us? For us to even begin to understand how unity works, we need to look to Jesus. The whole of the text that we've just read, you're right, Thomas. Whole of the text that we have just read is infused with the unity that comes from the Trinity. Now, If you're here today and you don't understand the Trinity, don't worry, you're not alone. The Trinity, the triune God, is the language that we use to describe the indescribable. The relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when we try to describe the Trinity, I'm glad that we have 2,000 years worth of Christian scholarship going before us to think about, to help us reflect. Because if it was left just to me, we wouldn't get very far. It's the kind of idea that we often need to use images to help us with. And it's fairly helpful that there is an image in the book that we've given Charlotte today. The idea that God can be three different identities all at the same time kind of melts our brain. But in John 17, Jesus is constantly using the language of relationship as he speaks, you are in me and I am in you, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And like we can see in this picture of a dance, scholars have used the idea of continual movement, almost like a dance, to describe the interconnected, interdependent, harmonious relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's this kind of generous, loving, relational interdependence that Jesus is inviting us into when he speaks of unity in the church. It isn't that we have to agree on everything because that is never going to happen. It's rather that underneath our humanness, our complexity and our fragility Jesus invites us into deep dependence on the person of God. And as we are in God, as Jesus describes, we become infused with his values of goodness and love. This means that when we go into situations where there is disunity, 
and we always will, we can place our focus back on the God who is one and we can use his love in us and not our clever skills to make relationships right wherever possible. This is deep stuff and it takes a lifetime for us to practice this. Now, depending on the love of God doesn't mean that Christians have a free pass to treat one another badly and get away with it. We are all ultimately answerable to God for how we behave. It does mean, though, that the church has the capacity, when things work well, to be the sort of place where unimaginable feats of generosity and reconciliation become possible. I'm thinking about the story of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman whose family helped people to avoid capture, helped Jewish families to avoid capture from the Nazis during the Second World War. They made a hole in their house and they hid people in a secret room so that they could evade capture from the Jews, from, from the Nazis, sorry. After doing this for many, many years during the war, Corrie ten Boom and her family were caught and captured and they were sent to Ravensbrück prisoner of war camp. And in that prisoner of war camp, Corrie's father and her sister both lost their lives. Corrie ten Boom was then released and uh, through a clerical error, she should never have been released, but she was accidentally released and spent the rest of her life telling people about Jesus. One day, many years after the war, she found herself in a church in Germany speaking about forgiveness. At the end of the service, a man walked up to her and she recognized him immediately because he had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp. He had been one of her captors. He stood before Corrie and she recognized him, but he didn't remember her. He said to her, I became a Christian after the war. Your message about forgiveness touched me very much. You talked about Camp Ravensbrook, and I was a camp guard there. I've always wanted to ask forgiveness of someone personally. So I ask you, will you forgive me? Corrie wrote that she felt like her blood was freezing. She said, there suddenly stands a man before me, co-responsible for the slow, horrible death of my dear sister Betsy. And he dares to ask me for forgiveness. All those beautiful sermons about forgiveness. But now I have to forgive myself and I can't. The man holds his hand out to Corrie, but she won't take it. I prayed softly to Jesus. I don't want this. 
you will have to help me. And then I realized, forgiveness is not an emotion. It is an act of the will. The feeling is not there. But I could move my hand. Almost mechanically, she writes, I place my hand in his and then something extraordinary happens. I suddenly feel a warm wave through my body, from my shoulder, through my arm, to our hands. I have to cry, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. There we stood, the camp guard and the prisoner. For a long time we held hands, and never before have I experienced the love of God so deeply. Thankfully, most of us will never be in a situation like that that requires such an extreme act of forgiveness. But developing that capacity to forgive and that capacity for reconciliation can only come from being held and shaped in the love of God. And this is the unity that Jesus speaks of. Not a unity that overlooks or looks away from challenges to relationship, but a unity that looks these challenges in the eye and then looks to Jesus for the strength and wisdom to rebuild and reconcile. And it is a church that is able to be identified and unified in this way that gives me hope for the future. This week on Friday, I attended some training uh, with Andrea. We'd been invited through the Family Works, our family support program, to attend some NHS training on how inequalities in healthcare affect children and families. Leaders in the NHS had been invited creatively, it was a very creative training, to imagine a different future when some of the challenges that mean that children suffer more than others could be eradicated. And to do this, we were asked to do a little thought experiment. We had to project ourselves forward 25 years, well, just a bit more, to 2050. So we had to think about the year 2050 and ask the question, what would life look like if things carry on as they are now? Thought us response climate change between the rich in society. And it was that room, a massive in so that we ourselves in the possible future, future that we had, that we had, that we had, we had imagined, had imagined, imagined, imagined. I think, I think this is, I think this is a really, think this is a really, this is a really interesting, really interesting thought experiment for the church too. What do we hope that the church will be like in 25 years' time? Despite the challenges that we see all around us and some of the challenges that I've spoken of today, I do feel hopeful for the church in 25 years' time. Not 
because we're necessarily better people, more equipped to overcome challenges than other institutions, but because the church as a community that is shaped by and filled by the Spirit of God has a reason for hope. 2,000 years of the church growing and shaping and being an influence upon people that are some incredible things, an influence upon people that are some incredible things that have happened. Schools in this country, education for all children because churches decided that that was what they wanted to do. Improvements in healthcare, because that's what the church decided they wanted to do. In Tanzania, right now, the project that this church has supported over the last three years in Borega, our partner in that work, Tear Fund, have done some research um, surveying 8,000 people from the different countries of Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, and Zimbabwe, and they have learned that for every pound that is invested in that work delivered by the local church to develop transformation projects in those countries, every pound invested has yielded 28 pounds of social value for those communities, enabling those communities to stand on their own feet, developing sustainable farming and uh, other ways that are lifting those communities out of poverty. The world church is growing The church is growing in China, South America, Africa, and Asia. In 1900, there were 8.7 million adherents of Christianity in Africa. Now there are 390 million, and it's expected that by 2025, there would be 600 million followers of Jesus in the continent of Africa. The church is not declining in every space. The word of God is still bringing life and healing and wholeness and restoration as the church grows. Jesus speaks of unity for his future followers because he knows that we need to be deeply rooted in relationship with the person of God first and foremost. As we do this, we are able to see incredible transformation as we love one another deeply. The love of God is powerful. It breaks chains. It releases forgiveness. It liberates captives. It opens doors. And Charlotte today, she's having a nap now, but she is being welcomed into a community that is at once fragile and human, but is also powerful and God-filled. It's a community unlike any other, where you can join with the family of God the world over in worship, community, and transformation. It's a community that crosses barriers of language, culture, age, and class 
as all people are invited to worship God together. Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So Charlotte, you are invited and welcomed into a community that is full of ordinary people, but infilled and shaped by a powerful and loving God. And my prayer for you this day is that the church will always be a place of welcome, refuge and growth. And that you will know throughout your life the love of God's people, but that most of all, your life will be shaped by and anchored in the love of God. Amen.